Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. Welcome in here on this Wednesday morning, uh, awaiting our special guest so that we can go further and geek out on Truman history, which we're anxious to do here just in a bit. While we're waiting, this is now the third time in what, a week, a mm-hmm. week and a half? Yep. We have another high school with a football team that has a player who was ineligible and now has to forfeit games. We should narrow that down a little bit and say this is the third time here in Kansas City. That True, this has yes. Happened. Because according to the folks at Fox 4, this makes the total statewide six Six schools have had to forfeit all their games this year, uh, or at least a portion of their games this year, because they had ineligible players, which begs two questions. Number one, is that more than years past? And the answer is yes. And number two, why are half of them here? Yeah, that was when you said that, I thought, well, that's a pretty good number for us to have. Then half of the ones total in the state. (laughs) Yeah, not great. Uh, So again, we don't know what the problem was. Uh, we still don't know about Lincoln Prep and who is the other one, the for Grandview. We still don't know about those two either. Um, Park Hill School District said the issue was unknown to coaching staff until last week. They have to forfeit seven games. Here's the thing. We're getting further into the season. And so you're having more games now that these ineligible players are playing in. And so more games you have to forfeit. And he's honking outside <laughs> I thought there very was loudly. Music. I was like, wow, we, don't we know have, why. have our own music for the stories now. Yeah, right. So they said they discovered a mistake uh, at the administrative level about one of our players' el- uh, eligibility status. They said they immediately self-report. It's the exact same statement. It is the exact same statement word for word. Uh, they just uh, reported it to the Missouri State High School Activities Association. <sighs> to come to a conclusion on what to do. Yeah, which they have to, but boy, doesn't it it start to sound like they're all going, oops, oh, sorry, Uh, yeah, uh, we had no idea. I'm starting to doubt that they had no idea. I'm starting, I said this to you off the air, I'm starting to wonder, is there one person who's going around looking at, at football teams around the area and I don't know if they have a way to check that the rest of us don't, but the timing is interesting. And they really don't. Uh, that was one of the things also in the uh, in the Fox 4 story about this. They said uh, the MSHSAA, the Missouri whatever State High School Athletic Association, does not have an investigative arm inside the organization. Member schools govern themselves, and reporting is appreciated, I'll bet, and needed. So they they don't seem to have an agency that does that that goes Uh, out and investigates the claims. So in terms of things that could be done better, that seems like something they should have. I I can't believe that part about they're just expected to be on the honor system, basically. Sounds like it. Again, scholarships ride on this stuff. I mean, I I know we joke about that sometimes, but truly for some kids, 
college scholarships ride on their ability to play high school football. Yeah, and and I'm trying to remember from uh, from the folks at Channel Nine from their version of this story about Park Hill because they focus much more on Park Hill itself. Mm-hmm. Was there not an indication that maybe what we're talking about here is in fact somebody who was outside the district that should the person that that, that is, shouldn't have been at the school? I don't know if there's an indication. Uh, let me. Yeah. Uh, um, hmm. No, uh, I may be wrong about that. But, yeah, it seemed that there was something there that said or that, that at least intimated, maybe it was in the in the Fox 4 article, that intimated that, there, that the problem, at least in Park Hill's case, was one of eligibility because of uh, uh, an address, because that person wasn't even supposed to be at the school. So we'll, we'll find out. There are other rumors going around, and that's really yeah. all that they are, about some of the other things that may have been going on. Um, but... Yeah, it just seems like if you're going to have eligibility requirements and you're the state athletic association, it really should be on you to go out and make sure. And like we were talking about, do some kind of an audit every year and make sure that everybody who's out on the field is eligible to be there. For sure. Don't just leave it up to schools to self-report because what's their motivation to? Sure. I mean, because I assume what happens is somebody else found out and told the school, I know. Like, I know this kid isn't eligible and you better check. So then they sort of have to, because if they don't report to the state, then that person that knew about it's going to. But there's no motivation. And and gosh, I would love to know if there is any penalty from the state association if the district knew and didn't report it. But if they don't even have an investigative arm, like, how do they decide how many games they forfeit? Every game that that kid played in. Right. That's really it. And and there doesn't seem to be any punishment beyond that. I mean, we talked about if if they're involved in some kind of wrongdoing. I mean, let's say, again, just for the sake of argument, that one of these schools, one of the six in Missouri, uh, went out and actively recruited a kid and helped him fudge the rules so that he could go to their school even though he wasn't supposed to go there. Mm-hmm. Then it seems like the punishment should go beyond that. Then you start talking about wrongdoing by the school and it, it seems like it shouldn't just be, so you forfeit all the games that that kid was involved in. Then, you you know, you don't get to go to tournaments and you don't get to, that's the kind of thing that if it happens at the college level, you're talking about potentially years where you would be kept out of bowl competition. And if I'm the MCMSHSAA, <laughs> I'm looking at this going, they it's just a hard thing to different say. Different acronym, they really yeah. do. Call it something uh, a little more catchy. Um, but if I'm that that agency, I'm looking at this going, we have three school districts, three major ones in, you know, in the same metro area. Maybe they should do a little look-see around just to see what's up, why it's happening so much right now, and why it was just now that it was caught. Uh, yeah, and, and the, the uh, by the way, yeah, it was, it was the Lincoln Prep one mm-hmm. that, uh, that was the one where they, they kind of gave some detail as to what happened, and that was an odd rule. Colin, we may need you on this one because, uh, at least in Lincoln Prep's case, according to Channel 4, they said the problem was they had a sub-varsity player, a restricted player, a sub-varsity restricted player who played in several varsity games in a limited capacity. The school said a misinterpretation of the term sub-varsity was the cause of the mistake. Can you not elevate a kid who's JV to varsity if you want to? So you can. You only have a certain amount of quarters that you can play every week. So if a kid plays in a JV or a freshman game on Monday Ah. and plays all four quarters the whole game, he's only limited to a certain amount of playing time on a Friday night. 
Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that was part of the problem with Lincoln Prep. And it seemed to me that one of the other schools, it was a problem with where the kid lived. But we'll see if we can find the details on that as well. There's so much to this, and I recognize that we're just kind of speculating based on things we don't know. But I, for one second, I want to touch on the academic eligibility because that's where I feel like, again, when I was in high school, there was a list. And when I student taught, this list came out every week. Every Friday, you know, teachers had to report their grades for eligibility. I mean, that that was the, you had to report that just so the athletic director or whatever could say, okay, here are the kids that can't play this weekend. Yeah. It was, and, it's just such a simple, clear process. And, you know, and again, Colin, with something like that, that eligibility with the only be, being able to play four quarters in a particular game or, well, there's only four quarters in a game or uh, six quarters in a week. Is that widely known? I mean, should any high school coach know that? Yes. Okay. So if they, if they botched it, I, there doesn't seem to be any way that you should be able to, to, to screw that up. Um, okay. A couple of you have said you have to live in the district for a year before you can compete in sports. Okay. And that that might've been the situation with at least one of these that they didn't live there for a year. Huh? Okay. If anybody else has theories, 913-586-7798. Still hoping to get more into some of the Truman history. We're hoping to do that next here on KMBZ. Happy to have you with us here on a Wednesday morning. Uh, so special event coming up next week to talk more about the history of Truman. Special guest on the line with us. Yes, indeed. We have online with us Steve Drummond, who has given us the book, The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. And Steve Drummond, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. And I want to start with uh, Harry Truman's sort of rise to power because, you know, lately it seems like every time there's a national crisis, we see the profiteers <laughs> and the and the you know the people coming out of the woodwork to swindle money out of the government. It happened after two, uh, September 11th. It happened during the Gulf War, the second one. It happened during COVID. And what we find out in the book is a that's nothing new, and b <laughs> that had a lot to do with Harry Truman becoming eventually president of the United States. How did it happen? It did. And it's funny you say that. We keep hearing over and over again these stories about the $80 wrench or the $100 toilet seat at the Pentagon. And that's basically where Truman began this whole journey from being basically, in 1940, an unknown senator to three years later being vice president of the United States. He um, it And it started with letters from his constituents. The United States, says <clears throat> to set the scene, was... Uh, World War II was raging in Europe. Uh, the United States was not yet involved, but everybody, including Franklin Roosevelt, knew that we probably would end up in the war. So there was this big race on to build army camps and, and new battleships and new merchant ships and all of this stuff. And Truman, in early 1941, was getting letters from some of his constituents about an army camp that was being built in Missouri in the Ozarks called Fort Leonard Wood. I believe it's still there. Yep. And um, – they were saying, hey, something's funny going on around here. You know, guys are sitting around doing nothing. They're playing cards. Materials are going to waste. Uh, you know, profit uh, uh, contractors are getting rich off the government here. And Truman, in his kind of cool Truman way, rather than sending a staffer out there or getting on a plane with a big delegation, he got in his car one morning in Washington, D.C., and he drove out to Missouri to see what was going on at this army camp. And what did he find out? Yep. And when he got there, he, it's exactly what the letter writers had said. He, Truman was super angry. It was wintertime. 
stacks of lumber going to waste, uh, covered with snow and getting all wet, guys sitting around doing nothing. Um, the, the, some of the contractors were just soaking the government three, four, five times their annual profits that they had made before the war. And from there, Truman kept going. He went to several other army camps in several states. He saw the same thing all over. He came back kind of hopping mad. He got up on the Senate floor on February 10th, 1941, and he said, hey, you know, I think we should have an investigating committee to look into this, you know, and see what's going on as we're make sure we're spending the taxpayers' money wisely. Well, Truman was a Democrat. The president of the United States was a Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt. Nobody was super wild about this pipsqueak senator poking his nose into the administration's business. Having said that, it soon became clear to Roosevelt and others that if, the, if a Democrat didn't do it, then the Republicans would. And so they tossed Truman a bone. They gave him $15,000, which was peanuts even in that time, to start up a committee. And Truman took that and turned it into the most powerful congressional investigating committee that the country has ever seen. Yeah, and this was at a time when, as you said, I mean, not only are we worried about taxpayer money, especially while we're trying to fight a war, everybody was living under all kinds of, I mean, you had to have gas stamps and food stamps and things like that. So we're sacrificing, and these guys are frittering away all of our stuff. Right, and the other concern, too, was was to make sure that the uh, fighting men and women uh, overseas were getting the equipment they need. And if they're, you know, if if, if they, uh, in one case, uh, airplane engines were being shipped out of the factory in Ohio with bad, you know, bad materials inside. Uh, there was a, a, a steel plant in Pittsburgh that was um, shipping bad steel plates and telling the government they were just fine by faking the inspection. So there were lives at stake, uh, not only taxpayers' dollars, but the war effort and, you know, human lives are at stake here. And Truman spent three years basically, um, uh, you know, in the face of the high military officials and in the face of high corporate officials saying, hey, you got to do a better job. Tell us more about the people that were involved in this Truman committee. Who was he looking to? Sure. So he got a uh, they uh, they they gave him seven senators and he got kind of a B list of sort of okay but not the rock star senators of the time. But he picked friends of his from his first term in the Senate who both Republicans and Democrats, which is a key point of this committee, especially given the dysfunction in Washington today. But he had a bipartisan committee, and then the whole thing hinged on the staff. He went to the attorney general of the United States. He said, I want your best prosecutor. The attorney, Robert, uh, the attorney general gave him the name of Hugh Fulton, a 36-year-old prosecutor in New York City who had just put a, the head of a utility in jail for stealing $200 million. And this ended up being one of the things that made the Truman Committee a success was uh, the staff work of young people, many of them right out of college, who suddenly found themselves going undercover in steel plants and traveling around the country to see what was, you know, why was so much money wasted on this or that uh, munitions factory or whatever. And this was kind of the heart of the Truman Committee. He provided the leadership, the bipartisan support, the sort of ethics to say, hey, we're not grabbing headlines here. We're not just going to make a big statement. Oftentimes, if he could get the military to fix a problem, no harm, no foul, that was fine. It was only when the military stonewalled him, which of course they did, that he would say, okay, let's uh, get out the subpoenas and let's have a public hearing and we'll sit there and uh, air this out in front of the reporters and the public. 
And that's what they did. So we get into the 1944 campaign, and, and yep. this marked the second time that FDR had uh, mm-hmm. changed vice presidents, changed running yep. mates, uh, got rid of John Nance Garner in 1940, right. and then decided Henry Wallace wasn't going to be the guy in 44. Why? Yep, Wallace. Um, Wallace was like kind of a dreamer. Uh, the, the 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 liberals, Eleanor Roosevelt, a lot of the people in the party loved him. So did the American people. He was he was an agricultural scientist. He was a very thoughtful guy kind of a, one of the key architects of the New Deal. But the kind of the basic meat and potatoes guys in the Democratic Party said, this guy doesn't know how to win an election. He doesn't know how to form a party base. He doesn't know how to raise money. He doesn't know how to do all this stuff. So there was a strong campaign that said, hey, um, we, need, uh, you know, we need a more efficient politician and a more effective leader in the number two spot. The key here, as I think you're, you're getting at, is everybody – well – Everybody in the know, the American public didn't know this, but a lot of people in the Democratic Party leadership knew that Franklin Roosevelt was by this time a very sick man. They knew that he was very unlikely to survive a fourth term. So it became really important that whoever became vice president was almost certainly going to be the next president of the United States. There were a lot of way more popular people than Truman, uh, Jimmy Burns of South Carolina, uh, you know, Henry, Henry Wallace was in the running. One by one, these candidates sort of fell by the wayside, many of them uh, on racial issues. Um, and Truman, by August of that year, was kind of coming out to be the, the top candidate. So tell us about the event. It's a week from tonight at the Truman yeah. Library, uh, the I'm, 25th. I'm very excited. I came out to the Truman Library right. I was almost finished with the book, and I was waiting. It was shut down with COVID, and they were they invited me out, and I did a lot of the key research for the book at the Truman Library, and they've invited me to come back out and give a presentation, not only about Truman and the story told in the Watchdog, but a little bit about how I wrote the book and how you know a a, a, a story like this. You know, one of the surprising things is nobody's ever written this book uh, before. Mostly the Truman Committee gets maybe one chapter in the biographies of Truman. And it was surprising to me seeing this kind of both this kind of crucial part of Truman's story, but also this relevance today. We keep seeing over and over and over again these $1.5 trillion government spending bills. And the question comes up every single time hey, we should kind of keep an eye on this money and make sure we're spending the money wisely. Well, so many of the lessons that the country has learned about how to do that. Go back to the Truman Committee in 1944. Excellent. Well, the book, again, is called The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. It's out from Steve Drummond, our guest. And, Steve, there's there's one more history question I would love to ask you, because when when we get into the Truman presidency, uh, in the early days of the Truman presidency, obviously unexpected, but FDR is now gone, and you still have the war raging, but the Japanese are on the ropes, the yep. Nazis are on the ropes, and and I, I just wonder, how did, did Truman view the two theaters of war differently? Um, very, um, very much so. For one, it, it, it involved the personalities involved. He was very fond of General Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, he was Truman had served in combat in France. He understood the issues at all. He was way less familiar with the Pacific campaign. He did not care for personally General Douglas MacArthur, who was kind of <laughs> running things out there. Yeah. And he had to make a lot of snap decisions, you know, most importantly, the decision to drop the atomic bomb. But he had to make uh, made the decisions with the Pacific War with a lot less information than he had about fighting in France and invading Germany. 
Just a fascinating story, a fascinating period of time, of course, in American history. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the 25th at the Truman Library. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Pleasure talking Thanks, to you Steve. as well. Yeah, that's, again, Steve Drummond. And again, October 25th, a week from tonight at 6 p.m. at the Truman Library. All right, coming up, cursive had been going away a little bit in schools. Looks like it's coming back. Get to that coming up here in KMBZ. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. Phone number here, 913-586-7798. All right, when it comes to what schools are teaching, we start having a conversation about whether kids need to be taught, say, basic math because they have calculators. And do they need to be taught how to write cursive because they're always going to be typing on computers? For a while, it had shifted away from teaching them to write cursive. Now it looks like it's coming back a little bit. Yeah, at least in California. Uh, this is one of the few things that Governor Newsom in California has done that I went, hmm, yeah, that actually sounds like a really good idea. Uh, he signed a bill that would require cursive instruction in first grade through sixth grade. That's a long time to devote. Now, that's going to be all part of spelling in English the same way that it was for us. So it's not going to be you know, entirely you know, focused on cursive writing. But it's going to be part of the instruction catalog. And I, I was interested to see some of the reasons they came up with why different educators thought this was a good idea, because it's not all what you might think. Uh, one of the, the uh, one of the educators they asked about this said, this actually may be one of the ways to combat using AI to do your schoolwork for you. Make them handwrite essays. Um, so two things came to mind for me. Um, not all kids are like this. But I am the type that if I write something out, I'm more likely to remember it. Mm -hmm. I, the older I'm, I'm memory sometimes not amazing. And so if, but if I write it out, I remember it much more likely than if I type it out. If I write out my grocery list, I'll remember it more likely than if I put it on my phone. So that's one of the things that comes up. What I didn't realize is that they said um, disabled and neurodiverse kids, so ADHD, things like that, do better with cursive. And they said it's it's a, the same part of the brain that deals with drawing and flowing movements. It, it helps them more that way. Yeah, because you're engaging left brain and right brain at the same time. Uh, so you're, you're uh, where I'm trying to remember which one's which. So right brain is the one that's very ethereal and sort of, you know, works in pictures and things like that. And left brain is very logical and you know, logic centered. So if you're printing words, you don't get that same like cursive writing is almost artistry. So yeah. you're engaging the language center on one side and you're engaging that sort of um, th that more artistic center on the other side. So it makes for a, a more fulfilling experience if what you're trying to do is engage all areas of the brain. So that I thought was kind of cool. The, the problem is every so often you run into people like me who I'm a lefty, but I write with my right hand. 
So oh, my okay. so, so my cursive writing is a mess. Okay. <laughs> it's absolutely horrible. So I've gotten away from it more so that I can I mean I can read it. I know what I mm-hmm. wrote, but nobody else can. I also think it's interesting and it's not in this story and I go squirrel here for half a second, but somebody tell me I'm wrong. Traditionally it seems like men have worse handwriting than oh, women do. For sure. And I don't know why. I don't know why that is, but it's true generally across the board with little kids and with adults. Yeah. And I, I don't know what that's about. I have to tell you the part of the story that I struggle with a little bit in part because it made me feel old, but we now have been away from teaching cursive long enough and making that a priority that you have a generation of teachers now that wasn't taught cursive <laughs> and wouldn't know how to teach it. Yeah. What do you do about that? How are you teaching then? Like, do we need to do a workshop to teach 25 and 30 year olds how to do cursive so they can teach kids? Probably. Yeah. And can you see in your head a bunch of 25 and 30 year old young teachers sitting there with that same paper that we used to have that had the two solid lines and then the dotted line in the middle of it, like just trying to form the letters going, oh, that's a B. Okay. Uh, And then having to to relay that back to the kids because the instruction for the kids probably isn't going to be any different than what we had. Right. Yeah. Like we remember the lined paper. Yeah. that we had that showed you the right way to do everything and it had to fill the space and you had to pre- is that what 25 year olds are doing is they're having to write the the k a hundred times <laughs> to get it right very likely um uh, yeah i mean the reason why i guess to me the most compelling reason to still have kids learn it is because there's there are a lot of things. I mean, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence always come up as things that were written in cursive. Right. You, you, now, granted, you can find them printed all over the internet too. But wouldn't you love to have a kid be able to go to Washington D.C., go to the National Archives, sit there or stand there, and look at the actual handwritten document of the the Declaration of Independence and be able to read it? I also wonder. Um in terms of what's being taught, and we'll get to the calls here in a sec. Um, if you're not being taught cursive, does that also mean you can't read it? Like, does it mean you can't kind of figure out what those letters are? Are you used to seeing it enough? I, the the only thing that I can compare it to is before I learned how to write in cursive. And no, I it was just garble to me. Um, but I just wonder if you're, if you're older a little bit, like if you're fourth and fifth grade and yeah. you've seen cursive enough written. Maybe. Have you just seen type enough to know what it is? And you just don't have the practice of the hand movements down to be able to make the letters flow. I mean, like you said, making not only making a letter K, which is kind of complicated in cursive, the small K is, but then making that flow into an E next and, you know, just keeping it going. That idea that letters can be separate even though they're connected. And do any of us still write cursive the way we were taught? <laughs> Most of us have, have have changed it a bit to our own style. Or, like me, just abandoned it entirely. <laughs> Let's go to David and Lone Jack and see what he's thinking. Hey, David. Hello. How are you doing? Doing well. What do you think? Well, I think it's important to, that, 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 that all children learn how to do it. I mean, especially to be able to read it. I mean, you know, people always bring up the Constitution. I have a big, big deal about the Constitution. Think about how many corporate logos are written in cursive. The Royals. Coca-Cola, Walgreens, Kellogg's, all cursive. Good point. That's a, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. That's an excellent point. And it, yeah, if that just looks like garble to you, I mean, you're going to know what a Coke is, but it would be nice to be able to read the label. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah, well said, David. Thanks. 
People yeah. are texting in all kinds of things that are in cursive. Where else that do- you wouldn't be able to read? Oh, good. Um, yeah, it, and somebody just mentioned another reason to do it, especially if you're writing a lot by hand. If you're not just always grabbing the laptop, which is it's it's a lot faster. Just to be able to read it than have to, yeah. Or to be able to write it. I mean, yeah. you write a paragraph in cursive, your hand never leaves the paper. You just go, 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 go. And if you're writing, you know, just in print, then every time you make a letter, you stop, you go on to the next one. It just it takes much longer that way. They're absolutely right. Texter just said, I used to teach high school seniors who were unable to read the cursive comments I wrote on their papers. <laughs> There's okay. Another one, yeah. That's further justifying for me. I wasn't sure if it should be required or not. Um, but I, one of the things I don't like is when schools are wildly inconsistent about what they teach. And in a big state like California, I bet there is a lot of inconsistency. Yeah. Sixth grade seems pretty far, but okay. Y- yeah. The case is being made why it needs to be required so that all kids learn it. And, and that, yeah, just to keep the education smooth across the state. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world as well. Um, I mean, and I'm sure there are people, especially the younger you go down the age scale, who would say it's a waste of time. You know, yeah, you may see a Walgreens logo or a Kellogg's logo right now, but 15 years from now, even they may change. And that's true, but I still think it's a worthwhile pursuit. Uh, there are, I mean, you, you, people make the same argument about, when am I ever going to use algebra? When am I ever going to use trigonometry? And most of us don't. But it's still um, a good idea to know it. Algebra comes up quite a bit in figuring out um, if you're buying an item that's 20% off, how much of that price is that 20%. Like, that's where we're using algebra a lot that we don't realize. But you're right, trigonometry... Somebody tell me where trig comes up in real life. <laughs> yeah, calculus, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah and, and I'm sure it might in ways that we don't even conceive of. Uh, in the same way that you know, basketball players may not know the formula for wind resistance on a ball, but they use it. Correct. Um, somebody just said, I do real estate title insurance. Older documents at the county courthouse are handwritten. Great and we point. have to read them at times, and they are in cursive. Yeah, just think about maps and think about um, blueprints for things. I mean, anything that was written before computers came along, you're going to need to be able to read. Yeah. Require it. Do it. Yeah. I don't hate the idea. If, if they didn't teach it when my sons went to school, I'd have taught them anyway. And then how many parents know... There's one thing to be able to write in cursive. There's another thing to know the precise, proper. I don't know what all the letters. I, boy, that would be a good little challenge. Have somebody <laughs> write something in proper cursive. Like, do you remember the way that the M is supposed to be? Like some of those letters, the L was really wild. I mean, some of those letters were really, yeah, we don't write those nearly the way. They're just very, very elaborate. Nine one three five eight six seven seven nine eight. We can go back to the phones here. John's trying to write. I'm, sure, uh, I'm trying to write the entire <laughs> alphabet in cursive and see if I can still do it. Hi, Valerie. Uh, hi. Let me turn my phone down. All right. Great. Uh, you sound great now, Valerie. What's uh, on your mind? Okay. My sister was special needs and did not learn to speak until she uh, was older probably four or five. We lived in St. Louis. She went to a special school where they worked with her to talk. And one of the things they did was teach her cursive writing at four and five years old, because at that 
70 years ago, they were recognizing how that helped the brain with the speech. And um, as she grew, you couldn't shut her up. So, <laughs> so it was a blessing and a curse is what you're saying. Oh, it was it was a blessing. It was never a curse. I know. But I, was I have one of that's one of the things I have often thought of as my grandkids were like, no, we don't know how to cursive, and I'm thinking, but there is a correlation between that eye, hand, and speak uh, speech that uh, works together. Gotcha. All right. Uh, Valerie, thank you. The, uh, thanks very much for the call. There was another thing that happened. Now, granted, this is a, a, a very small example, but it's just an example of the kind of things that can happen. When I was a kid and worked fast food, there was a guy who came in. I was working a shift alone one day because they used to do that when I was 15. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're never going to see that anymore. <laughs> and a uh, guy came in who was hearing impaired. In fact, he was completely deaf. And tried to communicate with me on sign language. I hadn't learned it yet. I have since learned a lot of Amisland, but I didn't know any at that point. So mm-hmm. he had to write his order down on a piece of paper so that I could make it for him. And he wrote it in cursive. If he had done that and I didn't know cursive, we would have come up against roadblock number two. <laughs> I'm looking at the, I'm, so I'm looking at the cursive alphabet now. Just to see if I remember what all of these are. The I was really strange, and the Q was weird. Yeah, Q and, and the S Q, was weird. So is Z. Uh, yeah, X is kind of strange too. Yeah, anything that you do have to pick the the pen up for, uh, you know, you're crossing the T, dotting the I and the J, all of that, and even the J doesn't capital J. Take a look at a capital J and oh. tell tell me how that's a capital J. I know it because I have to use it all the time. Uh-huh. Um, it's why my signature is a mess. And mine doesn't look like that. I, I completely yeah. made my, you know, your signature doesn't matter. So mm-hmm. I, I made up my own version of a capital J years ago that I still use. And it, it, the top loop goes the other direction. I don't even use the top loop. I think I took the loop entirely off. Yeah. And I just do the straight down and around. Because I don't do that big top part. It does. It looks like anything other than a J. Yeah, just a lot of this is confusing. And the, and I get it takes time in a classroom. I, I It's a lot of time. And kids move at different paces. Yep. Yeah, well, in the, the capital Q, to your point, looks mm-hmm. kind of like a number two. Yeah. Yeah. It's just odd. Learn it. Like, it's not, once you learn it, it's not going to be that complicated. All right, we have phone lines ringing. If you're on one side of this or the other, feel free to get in. We'll wrap with your calls next on KMBZ. Talking about the story out of California, governor there just signed a bill that will require schools, require them to instruct on cursive writing first through sixth grade. Good idea. Let's go to Catherine and Raytown and find out. Hi, Catherine. Hey, hello. Howdy. Um, Hi. I used to work in the court system here in Jackson County and in the probate division, and we would get... Uh, uh, we would require signatures for uh, people signing for their uh, uh, money that they would be getting or, or whatever, whatever, doc, whatever they were receiving. And <clears throat> we started getting all these printed signatures, which the law did not allow a printed signature. And they actually did a law in the state of Missouri that now accepts printed signatures as legal signatures. Yeah, really? uh, yeah. It's, I mean, you could always use things like if you, you didn't know how to write, you could just make an X. But, um, X, but right. yeah, you're and right. We we, had, we got those. 
<laughs> oh, I'll well, bet. Uh, yeah, but yeah, that's interesting that they actually put it, they codified it into law that you can still print your name and it still counts. Be a legal signature because we were getting them and we were refusing them. And I guess, you know, the lawyers were complaining about it. And finally, they did a law that uh, changed it that uh, they can accept printed signatures now. Wow. <laughs> and times yeah. are changing. <laughs> Catherine, thank yeah. you. Uh, uh-huh. Bye-bye. Yep. Take care. So we didn't, it's only been in the last few years that we have made it possible to do electronic signatures. I mean, it used yeah. to be that if you needed to sign a lease or something like that, and you couldn't do it in person, it was going to be faxed to you somehow or, or mailed to you. And now we allow for electronic signing of things. What's funny about that is the electronic signatures are in cursive. Right. <laughs> so yeah. if we just did that when we uh, when we closed on the house, you know, we, we had that thing that where you had to initial everything, but you just click and it says, does this look OK to you? And yeah, that looks fine. OK, ding, 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 ding on down the line. But they're all written in cursive. Yes. All right. Thanks to everybody uh, for getting in here. Uh, coming up after 12 o'clock, there's a ton coming out about the Chiefs and Travis Kelsey. And he was talking more on the New Heights podcast. Get to that coming up after noon. But we have another story about the Toy Hall of Fame which I didn't know that they did this. No, and, and it's such a cool idea because every year, no matter what Hall of Fame you're talking about, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, the, the the Sports Halls of Fame, et cetera, et cetera, there are always people who are nominated and don't get in. And sometimes the ones who are nominated and don't get in have a pretty vociferous following. So the Toy Museum decided to do something pretty cool about that. <laughs> so they said, uh, this is the Forgotten Five. And they made the analogy, they're kind of like the Susan Lucci of the Emmy Awards, who I think was nominated 19 times before she won, or Steve Tasker to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. These are the ones that keep getting nominated time after time after time and don't get in. So they piled those five together um, and said, now you can cast one vote each day until Tuesday, October 24th for your favorite. And along with the other three main inductees on November 9th, this one will be announced too. And I have to admit, the list that they have of the Forgotten Five, that's mm-hmm. a pretty strong list. And by, the way, and by the way, thanks for bringing Steve Tasker up. That's a, it was on the that's list. A sore, I know. <laughs> it's just a sore spot. He needs to be in. Anyway, uh, yeah, so the Forgotten Five, um, of, of the five, of the, before we reveal the list, of the five, is there a personal favorite for you, one you think definitely deserves to be in? Yes. Which one? Uh, My Little Pony. I figured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My Little Pony is on the list. If if it were up to me, even though it's a toy that has annoyed parents now for probably going <laughs> on 75 years, the Corn Popper. Every little kid ever had the Fisher-Price Corn Popper. And they, they walked around behind mom when she was, or dad, d- doing the vacuuming, acting like they were vacuuming too with the little Corn Popper thing. Every kid did that. It has to be in there. I think that wins. You think I, that's the I, one that's I like win? My Little Pony, but I think the Corn Popper wins out of this list. Just ubiquitous. The other three that are on here, uh, the Pogo Stick, yep. Transformers. How did Pez <laughs> make it on? It's not a toy. No. Uh, yeah, uh, We, if, if I remember right, three or four years ago, we talked to the Toy Hall of Fame about Pez specifically because it had been nominated again and said, wait a minute, no, no, that's candy. And their justification for it is that even after you finish all the candy, kids still play with the dispensers. And, you know, they, they you, you act like they're talking and whatever. They they become almost puppets. And puppets would count as toys, so why not Pez dispensers? B, 
because there are 500 other toys <laughs> that we played with more than the Pez dispenser. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that one has a chance. I think Pogo Stick has a chance. I think uh-huh. My Little Pony has a chance. I think Transformers might be a little age-restrictive. Um, I agree. I mean, yeah. certainly iconic. I'm not going to argue that. It deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But I think of the of the five that we have, my top three are, are in terms of chances of getting in, are going to be Corn Popper, My Little Pony, and then Pogo Stick. If you want to text in, 913-586-7798. If you were going to vote on your favorite out of the Forgotten Five, what are you going to do? Again, I don't understand the Pez dispenser there. <laughs> and if it gets in, I will need them to come back on and explain to me what the logic was. Colin, do you have a favorite out of this list? Are you familiar with all of these? I, yes. Are you? I don't want to assume that you are. Okay. Do you have a favorite? Um, none of them really fit my bill, if that makes sense. Okay. I mean, Transformers probably, but more because I watched the show instead of playing with the toys. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I'll bet when you were two, you had a corn popper. You might not remember it, but I'll bet you had one. <laughs> yeah, they've been around forever. So, again, um, Toy Hall of Fame. Uh, you can visit their website, and they've got the pictures and all that kind of stuff if you forgot what some of these are. All right, we'll take a break here. Uh, coming up, Travis Kelsey talking more about his recent fame, higher fame, uh, on the podcast. Get to that coming up here on KMBZ. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.